good morning, everyone. So on top of the uh, early Christmas exodus that Isaac already talked about, we also have a wonderfully rainy day. So any of you that were able to make it out of your bed this morning um, and make your way here, uh, we don't believe that you're saved by works uh, at Collective. <laughs> but if you were, you'd be a little bit closer. Uh, as Pastor Isaac just said, we are continuing in our series in uh, Advent. Uh, moving towards uh, Christmas and using this as an opportunity not just to reflect on what has been given to us in the birth of Jesus Christ, but also to prime our little you know, brains and our hearts with expectation and anticipation for his promised return when he makes all things right. And so as we approach the big day, uh, I just want to begin this morning by entering into that Christmas space a little bit. So if you want to close your eyes, you can, but I just want you to think of uh, I'm going to give some kind of prompts and just know what emotions come to mind, what feelings well up within your body. And so the first is just Christmas morning. Specifically, let's go back Christmas morning to when you were a child and maybe one year that you got your, the gift that you wanted and there it was underneath the tree. You might think of the like ever viral N64 kid that opens that up and just, you didn't get 64, yeah! Or maybe, to flip it the other way, maybe a Christmas where you thoughtfully worked to either make or go after and get the, like, the one gift that the, the person that you wanted to give that to, uh, you, you, you finally got it together, wrapped, and to watch them open and the joy on their face. And what, what did you feel in that moment? For the parents in this room on Christmas Eve night, as you're wrapping presents, to look over the boxes and to see things like batteries included or no assembly required. What emotions just well over you. Or maybe just snuggled up on the couch uh, with family, watching Elf or Christmas Family Vacation. What emotions are there? Now, I want to continue, and I'm going to give you a couple other words and ideas that I just want you to know. What does your body do or what emotions come to mind? God. Jesus. Church. Christianity, and the gospel. You can open your eyes. It's, it's interesting to note the emotional difference here, isn't there? For some of you, you're saints, you've got it all figured out, and those were exactly the same. I say Jesus, and you turn into the N64 kid. Well done. Uh, you can feel free to come on up here, and you can, you can teach for us. But for most of us, there is a radically different, there's a distance between those emotions, isn't there? Between the Christmas season and the person that we're told is the reason for it. How many of us honestly would use words like merry or jolly, synonyms for happy, to describe Jesus? Like, oh, when you think about Jesus, oh, I think of Jesus, merry. Jesus is jolly, no. Now, some of this is largely due to the fact that, well, a couple of things. On one hand, it's largely due to the fact to like late stage capitalism, consumerism, which just feeds joy in the form of like retail therapy that you just mainline. And then, and so what, how is Jesus ever going to meet to that kind of consumerism? Yes and amen, but that's another sermon. This is, I think, largely more due to the fact that most of us within the church today have a, a largely malnourished and misinformed view of Jesus, as seen in many of the artistic representations that we get of Jesus. It's also why you think Jesus is white. No matter how many times we talk about Jesus as a Middle Eastern rabbi, your brain, Jesus, and it's like, whoa, white dude that shows up. But like this is also notice that you have at best Jesus is emotionless or you have uh, the middle one 
uh, oh, I forget the, uh, the painter, but you get the, um, the emotion here, just sad. Like this is the, for most of us, Jesus is at best in our minds emotionless, if not, as Isaiah put it, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Now the problem is that this extends is that this isn't even just how Jesus has been represented to us as an adult, but even when we see pictures of him as a baby. Yeah. <laughs> the disgust that came from, I don't know who that was, but that was an ugh. So there's this idea in um, a lot of traditions, and so we're not going to make fun too much fun of it, but trying to illuminate Jesus being born, like the full maturity of humanity, they, they painted him as like a little baby man. Um, but even then, the emotion continues, um, where you have this like receding hairline, straight-faced Jesus. I do not know what's going on with the neck, the one in the middle, um, but it's nightmare fuel. So I, I throw all these out to say, we say Merry Christmas, we enter into this holiday of joy and happiness while we inward, inwardly imagine that the whole thing that we're celebrating is this grumpy, bummed out, not bald, but balding boss baby. And like, that's what the season is all about. And so as silly, stupid maybe this is, our emotional experience when you close your eyes and I say the word God or Jesus is so vital because that distance from God and Jesus, the gospel, church, Christianity, whatever language we use, and that thing's distance from happiness and joy leads us to consider Jesus as not being someone who speaks to our happiness. So yes, you know, Jesus speaks to salvation, like where I go when I die or whatever, maybe wisdom or holiness or obedience, maybe justice, but not happiness. Like we just, we just don't think Jesus has any much to say about that. Because we don't believe that he has much to say about it, we, we end up looking elsewhere. We go to other things. So yes, I look to Jesus for salvation, obedience, and maybe some of these other more important you know, things. But when it comes to happiness, I'm going to take on you know, whatever um, uh, mindfulness writer I might find or some kind of you know, be happy book authorship that I'm going to find. I'm going to find someone else that's going to coach me in happiness because we genuinely don't think that Jesus has much to say about it. We don't believe that Jesus has much to say about what we want most and actually need most out of life. Happiness and joy is what you want most and what you need most out of life. It's what we want most. If I was to ask all of you this week, sit down, I had all the time and all the coffee budget in the world, and I was just like, hey, tell me, what do you want most out of life? As you began to give those answers, it would swirl around. If I poked and prodded enough around, around your happiness, you may say it's a relationship of being you may say even like a life of giving yourself away to others. Why would you do that? Because in your heart at some level, you believe that's the thing that will make you most happy. Career, parenting, a relationship, a particular uh, uh, accolade or something that you're, when I get there, why are you chasing that? Because you believe that that will give you happiness. It's what we want most out of life. Dr. James E. Wilder says, our brains desire happiness more than any other thing. It's not just something that we anecdotally know. Science tells us what you want most is happiness. It's also what we need most. Uh, Professor uh, Dr. Alan Schooner, he's at UCLA. He's called the Einstein of psychiatry, which is just, that's, you know, I can't even get my mind around that. But he's the Einstein of psychiatry. And what he's detailed over and over again is that joy is the fuel your brain is designed to run on. As you got to put gasoline in your car, your brain is meant to run on joy. And without it, like your car, like mine, the light just came on on the way here. I have to put gas in it on the way home today or what will happen 
is most likely Aaron with the kids on the way to school or something like that. This week, it's going to fall flat. It's going to stop right there. We need, we want joy most. And this isn't just two doctors. This is Christian tradition. St. Augustine writes, Is not the happy life the thing that all desire? And is there anyone who does not desire it at all? Thomas Aquinas, humanity is unable not to wish to be happy. Or Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician turned theologian, all people seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend towards this end. He goes on in the quote to talk about how even suicide is a pathway taken because they've come, that person has come to the point of their life of believing that is the one place to now find happiness, is for this to be over. No matter what means they employ, they all tend towards this end. We need joy, we want joy, we want happiness. And this is why this season of Christmas is so potent. For a month, we mainline joy and happiness in the form of nostalgia, sugar, family, feasts, and celebration. And this is why this month is also the most frustrating and anxious. Be happy, dang it. Why am I so... We get stressed trying to make ourselves joyful. Joy, we find, is really hard work. And so we enter in this whole season all the while inwardly carrying an assumption that Jesus and the true meaning of Christmas is simply not about our happiness. And this gets exacerbated by sayings in the church. We say things like, God isn't out for your happiness, but your... Yeah. Well, okay, yes. But you answered the second thing I was going to say. Scott is always a step ahead of me. So we say things, maybe you guys don't say it, so we'll just skip this part of the sermon. But it's a regular saying in the church that God isn't after your happiness, but your holiness. We, we say, we're told that the, the Christian virtue, what Scott just pointed out, that joy is different than happiness. Joy is distinct from happiness. And so what that means is that joy, whatever that virtue is, that fruit of the spirit that we're meant to have, is not laughter, it's not smiling, it's not enjoying the life that you have. So that's a lot at the front end, because this is why. As we continue in our Advent approach today, moving towards Christmas, I want to examine this dynamic a little bit more together today as we consider the third Advent theme of joy. And so with that being said, would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. For those of you without a Bible, we've got them at the back of the room uh, for you to borrow. If you don't have a Bible of your own, that's our gift to you uh, from us. Merry Christmas. Um, we really like the Bible here, and, and we think you should too. And so we have uh, copies at the back for you to have. But once you're there in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, would you join me in standing, if you're able, for the reading of the inspired scriptures? And so let's, let's pray, we'll read, and then we'll begin to detail this joy a little bit more. Joyful Father, you have sent Jesus so that we might share in the joy. Um, and there, there's just so many questions that come to mind when we think about that, of an experience of that joy, of how real or likely that is in this life, and what does it mean to find it? Um, these are the questions that come to mind when we think about it, once we begin to actually think about your work as one of joy. And so we just pray that today, Spirit, you'd speak through me. I pray that you'd speak through the text as we read from them, that you would go even beyond what the teaching is able to do. Uh, particularly in a city like L.A., that we are prone to the, um, the wicked stepsister of joy and happiness, of cynicism, um, of sarcasm, um, that you would actually unlock a deep joy within our community, that we would be something uh, to, this, to this city as we unlock the joy that you have for us. Would you speak today? Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. 
In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and rightfully so, they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, well, let's go straight to Bethlehem. Let's see what's happened, which the Lord's now made known to us. They hurried off and they found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Amen. You may be seated. Well, counter our receding hairline boss baby Jesus, right here at the heart of the Christmas story, we find it is a story of joy. It's a story of joy. If you're taking notes as a roadmap for the text and also for the teaching today, you'll see it behind me. In verses 8 through 10, I just want to examine a little bit of the angel's proclamation of joy. In verses 11 through 14, the person of joy that is Jesus. And then finally, looking at the shepherds and Mary, an invitation in verses 15 through 20 into the practice of joy. That alliteration, baby. It's the closest thing to just like nothing but net that a preacher can get. And it feels so good every time, at least for me. So let's, let's look at this first. The proclamation of joy, verses 8 through 10. On the night of Jesus' birth... The shepherds show up to these shepherds tending their sheep by night as the story goes. And this angel, this divine messenger, appears before them and proclaims to the angels heaven's description of Christmas. Whatever your description is of Christmas, I think the best authority for what Christmas is all about would arguably be an angel appearing from heaven declaring and speaking on behalf of God. And what does the angel say? Verse 10, Christmas is good news of great joy for all the people. Christmas is the good news, the gospel is the word there, of joy, a joy of both profound quality and quantity. It is a joy that is an immense quality. It is great joy. The Greek word there is, is mega. It's mega joy. Christmas is about what? Mega joy. That's what I'm in the market for, mega joy. Both quality and quantity. It's not just mega joy for some. It's mega joy for all people, for all the people. And so what is this joy? Lots of questions that we just came into. What is this joy? I actually want to begin to find our answers. We back up a few words by looking at actually the opposite of joy. In the first half of verse 10, the angel's, pro the angel's proclamation to the terrified shepherds was what? Before good news of great joy, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. The angel's proclamation of joy begins first and foremost with a call out of Fear. If we were to define fear for today, I think we could call fear the controlling emotion of the worst case possibility. The angel shows up and they are terrified. What's happening? Their bodies, their psyche, their whole selves are controlled 
at the worst case possibilities of what the heck just appeared before me. This is no floating, like you don't get terrified if a floating baby showed up in front of you. Like some of you have seen like the memes about like biblically accurate angels. Something more like that is what's showing up in front of them. And they're rightfully so terrified. And so they're, they're playing out the worst case possibilities. It's a state of compulsivity where we are dragged down further and further by what Aaron and I call in our home the fear spiral. You'll see it behind me. Um, this is, for many of us, this was like, oh, that's my 2020. Hi. You just remembered it all. The way that the fear spiral works, that controlling, compulsive move by the worst case possibility, is fear begets more fear, which begets more emotions like anxiety, panic, anger, depending on your personality, puffing up, or doubt, cynicism, which then leads to either isolation or enmeshment. And then those emotions then turn into actions like selfishness, deceit, greed, control, and manipulation. The fear spiral is alive and well in our world today. It's a snowball of fear. What ends up happening in the being afraid is we find ourselves moving deeper and deeper into these other emotions and then actions. If you were to sit down and recount some of the worst actions that you put, things that you did this past year, the thing that immediately brings up shame or frustration or, man, I can't believe I did. If you, with enough time, you will find that at some level it was rooted in, in this, this fear spiral. Something that you said, something that you did, it was about, at the end of the day, being afraid of X, and so I said this. I was fearful of blank, and so I did blank. And when we see this spiral and reflect on our own lives, it's not surprising that the angels don't be afraid, do not fear, is actually the most repeated command in all of the Bible. Think about that for a moment. Like, whatever you might think, like, what's the Bible's, like, what's the most important command in all of Scripture? And like most of us, I don't know what you would answer for. But 365 times the Bible repeats, do not be afraid, don't fear. And so it would seem that beneath all of the Bible's other do not commands is this first and foremost do not fear. If you can strike the movement of the spiral off at fear, then so many of the other do not commands, they, they just, they don't even materialize. And so whether we're afraid of an angel or the myriad of fears that we face living in 2022 and, oh my gosh, going into 23, the Christmas proclamation begins before we get to good news of great joy with don't be afraid. And that means then that the angel's proclamation of what is great joy that's being proclaimed here, it's the opposite of fear. The angel's invitation is out of fear and into its opposite, joy. It's not don't be afraid, but in light of what's happening here at Christmas, do be happy. What's also interesting is when you consider all of those 365 do not fears throughout the Bible, they are always paired with some form of but rejoice, yet celebrate, but sing, leap for joy. In essence, if you want to summarize most of the commands of Scripture, it's do not fear, but be happy, do be joyful. Some of you may think that sadness is the opposite of joy, but sadness can be held at the same time as joy. If you've been to a funeral, you know exactly how that's possible. I can simultaneously hold sadness and lament and grief and joy and happiness and celebration. But fear and joy cannot be held at the same time. It's one exception being in a haunted house. I hate haunted houses. If fear is the controlling emotion of the worst case possibility, it's opposite than joy, we might argue, is the controlling emotion of the best case reality where we move from the spiral downward of worst case to worst case to worst case to this upward pull motivated by the best case reality right before us. 
The best example that I have comes from the middle of 2020 with the birth of our son Arlo, where our, this is the moment Arlo comes. I don't know how the nurse got my phone, and she like took this picture. I, this wasn't me like doing a selfie. This was the nurse took my phone. I found this picture like after Arlo was born. And so this is the moment that he is born, this moment when fear is replaced with joy, a controlling emotion of tears and happiness and every, I can't believe it's what is it? It's the best case reality that's right here in front of me. And so joy is a pervasive sense of well-being that blooms into a spiral of its own, a spiral that doesn't take us downward but upward. As we find ourselves in the best case reality, joy brings us into delight, into laughter, into peace, contentment, and freedom, and then into actions of its own, of trust, generosity, honesty, selflessness, patience, kindness, goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, all emerge out of what is it first? Love, joy, and then peace, patience, kindness, goodness. They flow into one another. It is not a spiral that drags us down, but one that lifts us up. If you were to think over all the best moments of this year, they were going to be moments where you did it for joy, you found more joy in yourself, and it reproduced and multiplied joy to those around you. The best things in life don't lead us being more afraid, but actually more joyful. Don't lead to shame, but happiness. Dr. James E. Wilder in his book, Joy Starts Here, writes, Joy shapes the chemistry, structure, and growth of our brain. Joy lays the foundation for how well we will handle relationships, emotions, pain, and pleasure throughout our lifetime. Joy creates, do you notice the spiral he's doing here? Joy creates an identity that's stable and consistent over time. Joy gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and others. Expressing our joyful identity creates space for others to belong. Joy gives us the freedom to live without masks because in spite of our weaknesses, we know we're loved. Joy gives us the freedom from fear to live out from the heart that Jesus gave us. We discover increasing delight in becoming the people God knew that we could be. And so it would seem that if beneath all of the do nots in the Bible is the do not fear, that we could argue that beneath all of the do commands of the Bible, thou shalt, is that first and foremost, thou shalt be joyful. To live out of the joy that's before us rather than the fear behind. To live with happy courage. Now, a little bit of an in-house cleaning conversation. As I detailed a moment ago, all of this may seem at some level different or antithetical to what those of you who have grown up in the church have heard. Because as I talked about a moment ago, some of you have been told that happiness isn't joy. Happiness is earthly and it's fleeting. Joy is eternal and spiritual. So they're different. They're not the same things. Or we've heard that God is not out for our holiness, or excuse me, God's not out for our happiness, but our holiness. I have heard this in pastoral meetings with many of you. I have heard this in prayer nights, and I have bit my tongue because this is flat out wrong. Flat out wrong on at least four points, at least. The first is anecdotal. I've just found that many people who say this kind of stuff aren't cheerful or compelling people to be around. <laughs> it's totally anecdotal, but people that are like, God, God's not out for your happiness, but your holiness. And you're like, well then this is miserable. As you listen to them, when they describe if happiness is different than joy, what is joy that they're talking about? It's actually like stoicism, the Greek ideal of being cut off from your emotion. So whatever joy is for them, it's, it's an, about an emotional immovability rather than happiness. Their joy, whatever it is, is quite bland and boring. They don't smile. They don't laugh. They don't rejoice. I imagine them straight-faced singing, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. The first is anecdotal. The second 
is this understanding makes holiness an enemy of happiness rather than its friend. Now, I will be the first to say, holiness is a work of delayed gratification. Oh, yes and amen. But it's still gratification. And part of living into delayed gratification is doing it for the gratification that it's going to bring. Just consider, if God is out for your holiness and not your happiness, is God's desire really for a church of robo-saints? Of like emotionless automatons of obedience that just like move through their life sinless, but like totally devoid of any of the life that God gave them to have? So just imagine for a moment, what if instead of hearing that God is not out for your happiness, but your holiness, you grew up or even just now you hear, God is committed to your happy holiness, or God is committed to, he is in it for your holy happiness. How does that shift the way that you view following Jesus and what holiness results in and where happiness is found? The third reason this is flat out wrong is there's just simply no biblical basis for this distinction between joy and happiness. Over and over again, they're synonymous, they're used interchangeably. I could spend all day here. Two examples. Psalm 68, verse 3. But may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be? They're not two separate things. Synonymous. Next one, Psalm 90. Satisfy in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad, merry, happy. Always that word glad can be translated in Hebrew all our days. Throughout the Bible, we just, you just don't find a distinction between the, the Christian virtue of joy and happiness. They're, they're buddies. They're synonyms of one another. The distinction that you do find, that, that to the credit of what those people, some of the people trying to say some of this are trying to get at, is that there is a difference between true joy and lasting happiness found through the Spirit rather than the passing joy, the form of happiness that, that really just comes about as a distraction from our fear. Those, those totally are different things, but we shouldn't make joy an enemy of happiness. We should hold them together. The issue in the Bible is not between joy and happiness, but the source and depth of those things. And the fourth reason why this is flat out wrong, we don't just find this distinction in the Bible. We definitely don't find it in the life of Jesus, which brings us to the next movement in the text today, the person of joy. So as we continue out of verse 10 into verse 11 and following, the angel's proclamation continues, what is the great news of good joy? What's the substance of this announcement? Verse 11, today in the city of David, a savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. What's the source of the joy and the happiness for all the people? A savior, the Messiah, the Lord is born for you. Now the angel here picks up on a continual refrain from Israel's prophets, the generations awaiting the birth of the Messiah. Those prophets, more than talking about the forgiveness of sin or salvation, the primary substance of what they were looking forward to when the Messiah would come was joy. Three examples. Isaiah 51 says, those saved by the Lord, this is not just like saved in general, specifically he's looking forward to the work of the Messiah, will shout with gladness, eternal joy crowning their heads, happiness and joy will overtake them. Isaiah 49, shout for joy, you heavens, earth rejoice, mountains break into joyful shouts, for the Lord has comforted his people. Jeremiah 31, the young women will rejoice with dancing while young and old men rejoice together. I will turn their mourning into joy and give them consolation. I will bring happiness out of grief. The Messiah would bring, yes and amen, forgiveness and salvation and new kingdom. But the, first, the way that they talked about it was the emotion of joy. The Messiah would bring joy to all the people as it overflowed from his very person. As 
the scholar, author N.T. Wright says, in the Messiah, there would come about a new union between heaven and earth. I love this, this, this picture. With the celebrations of one spilling over into the celebration of the other. In the Messiah, heaven is throwing a party that overthrows into earth's celebration that comes back into heaven. And it becomes this reciprocal party of heaven and earth together at the person of the Messiah. That he would be a person of joy. Jesus would be a joy fest incarnate. And so for just a quick moment of, I literally, my note says fire hose of joy because I could go very slowly through this. We're going to go quick for the sake of time, both as a reminder for those of you who follow Jesus and as an invitation for those of you who maybe have never read the Gospels. As we move into Jesus's adulthood and ministry and you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you find is a life saturated with joy and happiness. When Jesus emerges on the scene for his baptism to kind of kick off his ministry, after his baptism, God the Spirit descends on Jesus with the voice of the Father speaking from heaven, an identity statement that would shape Jesus' sense of who he was, his personhood, and his ministry. And it was, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I delight. This is my beloved son in whom I am happy. This is my beloved son. He makes me smile. As many theologians have noted, what we see happening at the baptism there of the father speaking over the son and the son receiving that love, this is what God has been doing since eternity past. That the one God in three persons has been eternally this relationship of love between the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, a triune community of delight, a happy family of love. That from eternity past, the one God in three persons has been As Tim Keller writes, this divine dance of delighting love and one God in three persons. And so Jesus here in his life on earth is still dancing within that delight. It is the source of his identity is that when God looks at me, he smiles. This is how he saw himself as the object of his father's delight. And then shortly after his baptism, Jesus launches his ministry by reading from the prophet Isaiah. His mission statement, what he would go on to do is to bring good news to the poor, release for captives, recovery of sight to the blind, setting free the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Just think about that little list there. What kind of emotions come to mind for the people receiving that other than happiness? Nobody apathetically receives good news for the poor. There is no one that's sitting in prison that the door finally gets open and you're free. And it's like, cool, thanks. Can I, right now, I have to leave now? I'm kind of come. No, it's a bounding joy, a happiness that swells up at what has been done. This past week, I don't know how I stumbled upon it, as most things on the internet work, but I came across a video titled The Joy Compilation. And this joy compilation was video after video of little babies receiving glasses so that they could, for the first time, actually see mom and dad. And the joy of that video that had me, I'm just sobbing by the end of it, total baby, sobbing by the end of it. Why? Because the moment the glasses come on, little baby sees mommy and daddy for the first time, the sight is regained, and the laughter and smile comes at seeing who has been loving them and who they love for the first time. And it's just like, it's beaming delight. Jesus' ministry, his life on earth, was to bring about this kind of a response with the people that he engaged with, a compilation of joy. And then as you move through Jesus' teaching, what does the Sermon on the Mount open with? But the nine times over, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. Greek, the word is makarios. It can be translated, happy are the, happy are the, happy are the. 
In Luke 15, when he tells parables to describe his ministry, each of them ends with joy, celebration, and a party. He has come to bring about laughter and of the reconciliation that comes. In Jesus' parables, Jesus is funny. Like, he's a funny guy. Dr. Elton Trueblood, he wrote a book called The Humor of Christ, where he looks at the teachings of Jesus, and in light of the context of the day, he just finds in case after case, Jesus is so funny. You read over Jesus' teachings, and he's like, you must remove you know, the, the log out of your own eye, and we're just like, okay, Jesus. And like, this is, for the original, this is fun, like, Jesus is actually someone that would bring laughter to people's experience. As you read through, if you were to read through Luke this week, just note how often Jesus is feasting, partying, and celebrating, so much so that his critics labeled him a drunkard and a glutton. On each page of Luke's gospel, he's either at a meal, on his way to one, or he's coming from one. As one commentator said, if you can read through Luke's gospel without getting hungry, you're not paying attention. <laughs> Throughout the gospels, I think this is the strongest example of Jesus' personality of joy. Throughout the gospels, Jesus is constantly the life of the party, but in particular with the children. Though the disciples are always shooing the kids away, Jesus loves these kids and the kids love him. As somebody who has two of my own, here's what I know. Kids don't enjoy being with boring, solemn Toby Flenderson type people. Like, it doesn't matter if they're like God incarnate. If they're boring, they want nothing to do with it. But the portrait we get of Jesus in the Gospels is he's like a jungle gym. Kids crawling on him, sitting in his lap, listening to his stories, delighting in him, and him delighting in them. Or as we're going to detail more in January, Jesus kept the Sabbath. Once, at least, bare minimum, once a week, Jesus set aside a day for stopping, resting, delighting and worshiping. Into his calendar, he baked it in at bare minimum. One day a week is a day for delight. In Luke 10, we get an insight into Jesus as a person who is full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Full of joy through the Holy Spirit. All that we've just gone through, his happiness, his humor, his celebration, his joy-bringing miracles, they overflow from the intimacy and connection that he has with the Holy Spirit. For those of you who find that your happiness and joy is fleeting, this little line is the, the first little crumb on the trail towards where the true joy is found. Lasting joy is fullness of joy through the Holy Spirit. All of this comes together for us to be able to say that Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. When you think of Jesus, if you've got to pick between Christmas characters, you're closer to the reality with someone like Buddy the Elf spreading Christmas cheer for all to hear than the bah humbug of Scrooge. Though we do, yes and amen, see him mad or sad, it would seem that you got to try hard to get Jesus there. It would seem the baseline emotion of Jesus is joy. Now, some of you Grinches in here may argue, what of the cross? What about when Jesus took the sin of humanity and bore the burden of our iniquity when, when he saved us? Like Isaiah said, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Yes and amen. But what does Hebrews tell us is the thing that propelled him through all of that suffering and loss and dying for sin so that we might be forgiven? For the joy set before him. Even his cross was taken on to reconcile a joyful relationship, a happy friendship with you and I. John Piper writes in Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, salvation is not mainly the forgiveness of sins, but mainly fellowship with Jesus. Forgiveness gets everything out of the way so that friendship can happen. If this fellowship, if this friendship is not all satisfying, there is no great salvation. If Christ is gloomy or even stoical, eternity will be a long, long sigh. Heaven will be meh. 
Jesus is the most powerful, yes, but he's the most <laughs> powerfully happy person in being in the universe. And his death and his resurrection were so that he might bring you into that joy. That's what motivated him to endure the sorrow of the cross so that he might forgive you to restore you and I to the happiness and the joy that he has for us. As John said in John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Or Jesus on the night before going to the cross in prayer to the Father said, John 17, now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so they may have my joy completed in them. Jesus is committed to your joy being complete. And so on Christmas, the person of joy was born. Later in the story, we find the person of joy died and was raised to make you and I people of joy. And so what is the will of God for your life then? Well, at least one answer in 1 Thessalonians 5 is rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Some of you are up all night, what's God's will for my life? 1 Thessalonians says at least it's being joyful always. And what are the key defining markers of the people of Jesus? Paul writes in Philippians 1, your progress and joy in the faith. Notice that, the Jesus, that Paul here says, what, what, what he celebrates in the church in Philippi is your progress and your joy in the faith, your holiness and your happiness simultaneously existing and growing together. Philippians 4, what are the markers of the people of Jesus? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So the good news of great joy now, just as a side, because I can see some of your faces, needs to be said that this is not what's been called toxic positivity. The joy of Christmas is, or, or the joy of Jesus is not a call to ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy. Some of you need to hear that. That's not healthy, and neither is it necessary. And what we find represented in the people of Jesus is the ability to hold grief, like with the Apostle Paul, of grieving over lost um, ones, loved ones or losing friends or even losing his own freedom, and yet he's able to go through that and calls it being full of sorrow yet rejoicing. And if we don't separate joy from happiness, just, just I, full of sorrow while being happy. Paul was able to acknowledge his pain, but by his faith and trust in Jesus, he believed that his loss wasn't, hear me, the final or the only word in his life at any point. There are many of us that, that sorrow comes when we believe that whatever is being spoken over us in this season is either the final thing to be said, that needs to be held, but what also we need to learn to hold is that it's not the only thing being said in this moment. In the midst of deep grief, there's, there's immediate grounds for gratitude and joy around us if we open our eyes. And so this is, we become a people who are able to find joy in the midst of pain. And this is where, if you go back a couple of weeks, our first Advent theme of hope comes in. Joy is the emotional experience of life between the times, the tension we feel between Jesus' birth and his return. And that gets expressed how? Being full of sorrow yet rejoicing a pervasive sense of well-being in light of the fullness of time. So Christian maturity, Christian maturity for the people of collective is not growth into an emotionless stoicism of like gruff sorrow, of like Jesus is great, but like, you know, you're just like holding in all your tears. And neither is it the cheap quips of like let go and let God or like faith not fear by writing off any form of prevention. Maturity in a follower of Jesus is the ability to simply just hold our sorrow from our lives, hold the sorrow of our losses in our world while still rejoicing, while still being able to somehow find a smile in the midst of who Jesus is and what he's up to. 
All this comes as we abide in the joy of life with God now, as we look forward to the joy fest that will be his return. As the Bible ends, for the people of Jesus and all of creation, where's the Bible end? Abounding joy, laughter, and singing. I'll just point you to Revelation chapter 9 and Revelation 21. You can go read these this week. Revelation 19, where what is the vision of all of the people gathered? It is people singing, saying, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. In Revelation 21, it says, at Jesus' return, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. And grief, crying, and pain will be no more because all those things have passed away. And so the good news of great joy, the people that we've been invited to be formed by, is that there is a person who has entered into this world of fear who has now invited and made it possible to shape us into a people of defiant joy. And so you may ask, where's my angel? All right, this sounds great. I, I, want, I want the angel that like shows up and is like, good news of great joy for me. Like I need some, that, that miracle moment that breaks through. And I'm not going to pretend to call myself an angel. I am nowhere near enough. But uh, where's my proclamation? Where's the thing that calls me out of fear and into joy? This is where the gift that the same spirit that indwelt Jesus and filled him with joy is still at work. In this room today, bringing about moments of formidable joy's proclamation. I quoted from him earlier, but the French mathematician turned theologian, Blaise Pascal, had his own proclamation moment on November 23rd, 1654. No angel showed up, and yet many of the same results. He records, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12, fire, all caps, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, confidence, confidence, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, Deum meum et Deum vestrum, that is, your God shall be my God, forgetfulness of the world and everything else except God. He is to be found only in the ways taught in the gospel, greatness of the human soul, righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, joy, 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 tears of joy. This was his moment. This was his angel moment. No angels in sight, and yet this was his Good news of great joy for you. After Pascal's death, it was this account that was found sewn into the inside of his coat as a daily reminder and filter for his life. He carried his angel moment with him. This is a moment that many of you in this room have experienced in some form at least once in your life with the experience of having your eyes open to the reality of the joy, the good news of great joy that has been offered to you in Jesus, that it is good news of great joy, not just for all people. It's good news of great joy for me. It's an encounter that transforms us into new people. And so maybe today is going to be, as we move into a response time in just a moment, your, your angel moment, your proclamation. I can't promise any angels are going to be here. But I do believe the spirit moves when the people gather around the scriptures. That you might find the joy that is the gift given in the person of Jesus. But as we begin to wind down, while at the same time finding that this is both a gift that's been given to us while being something we need to sow into our coat. It's something we need to habituate. Joy is something we need to practice. In a world of fear, joy doesn't come naturally. It is a defiant choice that we must partner with God in order to fully experience. And so, of course, what regularly happens when I have a theme that I'm going to be preaching on, um, I have everything in the world that goes against me on that week of to, like, experience anything of what I'm preaching about. And so it's like, this week I'm going to preach about joy. And it's just like, ha-ha, like, no, you're not. Uh, just a week of, if we could call it anything, elusive joy. And so, so much of writing this sermon today has been as much for me, if not immediately just for me, than just for you. 
But I've been reminded again and again this week that joy must not be just a proclamation and a purpose, or excuse me, a proclamation and a person. It must be a choice. It's a practice that we enter into because the way that God works in the world is not through downloading joy into you, but through your partnership and openness to him. In a world of fear, joy is an act of spirit-empowered resistance. And so this is where I want to end with three examples of the practice of joy. In response to the angel's proclamation, the shepherds present us with three directions of practicing joy. How do I enter into the joy that's available for me in this world of fear? Three forms of celebration. Uh, these are detailed at collectivechurch.com. Oh, sorry, bud. Uh, collectivechurch.com slash current series. So you can go through this with your discipleship groups this week and begin to tease this out together. But for the sake of, uh, of handing it to you. The first direction, the first practice of joy is to ponder. And this is the movement of joy moving inward. We see this in the shepherds saying, let's go to Bethlehem straight, ahead, straight away to see what's been spoken to us. What do they do? The joy has been pronounced. It's been proclaimed. They've been told about the person. And so what do they do? Oh, we've got to go investigate it. We need to go ponder and think over what's been done in our midst. Or like Mary, we treasure up all these things in our heart and meditate on them. I love the direction of this because it's a call to ponder both for those who are investigating Jesus and for Mary, like the mother of Jesus. Both are invited to ponder. Both are shown exemplifying a way of thinking over what's been done in our midst. And so what Mary exemplifies here is what Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks call gratitude moments. And so here's, here's a little practice for the week. For those of us that want to move into pondering, moving joy inward. So you just think of a memory in your life in which you're grateful. This is going to be super, super practical for a moment. Think of a memory in your life in which you're grateful. It can be big, like the birth of a child. It can be small, like just a beautiful sunset one night. It can be ordinary, like a meal had with friends, or it can be spiritual, a proclamation moment, freedom from an addiction or a sin, some breakthrough. It can be your own baptism or your moment of confessing Jesus and following him. It doesn't matter what the range is, so long as you feel gratitude when you think about it. Once you've got that, give it a two to three word title. For example, some of my examples are uh, Arlo Hugs, uh, Abby Ducks, and Tears on the Rug. And so once you begin to name those in a quiet place, go back to this memory, relive it for a moment like you're there. And just ask, what, what are you feeling like in your embodied self? You're not just a brain on a stick, but in your body, what emotions, what does that bring? It could be peace or lightness. It doesn't matter so long as you're feeling something within your body and soul. And then you ask, what might God be communicating to you through this memory and the feeling of peace? And so if it's a view of nature you know, that comes to mind, you know, some hike of Grand Canyon or whatever, that God is with me and he likes to share his beauty with me. For me, Arlo hugs right now, my little two-year-old, is that moment of him running to me and jumping in and like, not just me hugging him, but him like hugging and delighting in me or Arlo kisses. is just this portrait of, man, God, you have revealed yourself as father and son relationship and the delight that I'm feeling right here. This is what you feel when I come to you in prayer. And I get this little moment, just gratitude to experience that. And so then, like Mary, treasure up all these things. Meditate on them. Return to them. For most of us, our brains have been rotted on Twitter and uh, TikTok. And so we have to do a lot of work to remember things. And so whether this is in a journal or your note app on your phone, start compiling a list of those little two to three word titles that you can just open up and look over. And have each memory, you know, these two characteristics, feeling gratitude in your body and a connection to God from the memory. And eventually you'll want to have a list of at least 10 grateful memories. And then you title that note or that page on your journal, Joy on Demand. 
And you just have that and you pull that out. And then the goal is, if you really want to grow in joy, once a day, try to spend five minutes residing in gratitude using your list of grateful memories. It's mostly nonverbal. You're just reading through it, flipping. Maybe you'll stop on one and you're just feeling the connection to God in your body as you relive those moments of gratitude. As it's been said, gratitude is the on-ramp to joy. And so this is one simple practice for going to Bethlehem to see what has happened, to treasure up all these things in our hearts and meditate on them. Are there other ways you can ponder to bring joy inward? Yes, but here's at least one. In the coming weeks, I would encourage you to try a great gratitude moments journal, something like this, to ponder, to move joy inward. The next direction of joy and a practice of joy is outward through proclaiming joy. Like the shepherds, we are reporting the message they were told and all who heard it were amazed. When this movement comes, we're moving out of the inward gratitude of pondering outward with joyful proclamation. And this can happen in two ways. The first is proclaiming it with each other. This past week, I was in discipleship group with uh, my friend Tim Rogers, who has been in Texas for uh, more than two weeks after his uh, father broke his back. And so his dad's been there helping care for his father, working through all of the next steps, trying to make the decisions of surgery, what do we do with my father's age, all of that stress that comes there. And yet when I asked him about it, how's Texas, how's your dad, he, after giving some of the details, immediately moved into this beaming smile as he talked about the opportunity that he had to pray with his dad 17 days in a row every single day. And so there's this moment of him, gratitude, right? Him thinking back over the memory. He was almost like he was living it as he began to smile and share in that joy. And as he's sharing it with me, my, my joy radar started going up. See, when we share joy, it, it multiplies. We don't lose anything by sharing joy. And so with plenty of feasts and parties in the coming weeks, I want to invite you. How can you intentionally share in the amazement and gratitude for what God has done, what he's been up to in your life? How can you wear the hat of being the chief joy officer at your work or in your family? As pastor and author John Tyson calls these meals redemption celebrations. Uh, read uh, a quote from the book Beautiful Resistance. He says, a crew of us from the city were gathered around a table, reveling in all God had done. Person by person, we opened our hearts and shared God's goodness. We laughed till it hurt. We wept tears of gratitude and ate until we were content. People shared freedom from sexual addiction, deliverance from a judgmental spirit, reconciled relationships with family, promotions at work, and fresh hope in a strained marriage. At the end of the meal, we raised our glasses and yelled, to the king and to the kingdom. The whole restaurant turned around for a second, drawn into the spirit of the moment. Later, the server who caught snippets of our stories said to me, that was the most hopeful thing I've encountered in years, and I don't even believe in God. Do you notice how when we move the inward pondering of joy out into a proclamation with one another, it overflows into a proclamation of joy to others, those who wouldn't be followers of Jesus. As we share in joy, we multiply the joy both in them and deeper within us. And you know this is true with restaurants. You know this is true with an album. You know this is true with a movie or a book or whatever. But often we make the one exception to the multiplication of joy talking about Jesus or what's called evangelism. But this distinction just sadly doesn't exist. As Timothy Keller writes, the lack of joy in your life is due to a lack of mission. You, you've, you've got joy limited to just pondering inward, and it's not overflowing outward into others. And so, of course, your joy is not multiplying at this crazy rate because you're keeping it within yourself. And so within the coming weeks and years, who and how is the Spirit inviting you to multiply joy by sharing it with them? Maybe a neighbor, a coworker, a family member, for the parents in here, just even your children. How can you report, like the shepherds, what you've found to others? And then finally, the third direction of practice 
The third praise is a joy upward in praise. Like the shepherds, we glorify and praise God for all the things we've seen and we've heard. We sing, we celebrate. In the language of the Bible, the, uh, one of the words translated as joy is skirtao. It literally means to leap or spring or jump with joy. We raise our hands, we lift our voices, we shout and sing. And this is what we're going to do in a moment as we gather together. We're going to praise together, sending the joy upward over who God is and what he's been doing in our midst. But your practice for this week is I want you to make a playlist, a holy, happy playlist. You can call it that. Of It can be Christmas stuff, worship stuff. For me, it's mine has genuinely some Christmas hymns, and then it has, there's a band called Wolfpack. They're just their bass lines in particular are insane, and so I've got to have that in there because it just does something to me. But I want you to make a playlist of happy holiness, something that gets you like in your body singing and dancing and like enter into that space. That can be sitting in your car or a dance party with your kids this week. How can you enter into what is what, is what Jesus came to do, to bring you into that delightful dance of the Trinity? Is that what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection, through forgiveness, is to bring you by the Spirit into that dance. When we sing, when we dance, when we raise our hands in worship, we are, we are participating in what, what God has been doing from all eternity. So just to kind of set up the, the weight of what we're about to enter into in just a moment. In doing so, this is, we, we enter into this joyful and delight. This is the whole purpose of what Christmas is here for. Good news of great joy for all people. All people, whoever you are, whatever the past week, whatever your life has brought you, the joy that Christmas, that God has for you, it's for you. It's for you as well. Because you see, fear is killing us. Fear is killing our nation. It's destroying our hearts in an ever-increasing spiral. Fear is putting us in a place of greater distance from one another, selfishness, inward greed, and anger. But God has an antidote for a world controlled by fear. Great news Good news of great joy. The Savior is born, our Messiah, the Lord. It is his presence, Emmanuel, God with us. It is his son, Jesus. It is the redemption, his fullness of joy that he has for us in him. And so when we take time to practice joy through gratitude, both personally and communally, communally what we find ourselves doing is carrying this warm, lighting fire of Advent joy in our hands to a world that is cold and darkened by fear. We bring joy with us, and what ends up happening is, is the happiness of the people of God becomes like a lighthouse in a world of dark fear. The, the light and the fire of joy becomes God's means of thawing a world frozen in fear, caught up in that spiral. So that's, that's the invitation for you and I in this season. In the midst of all the anxiety, in the midst of the joy that's going to be done in about 15 days or so, that there's a lasting joy that's been offered through the person of Jesus, and it is not different than happiness. It is a, an ability to smile, to laugh, to dance, to sing, to have prayers and thoughts of gratitude and celebration with others, because in the midst of a world of fear, joy has been offered to us in the person of Jesus. Let's pray.